Um, if you'll turn with me to Paul's letter, first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, a very short chapter, and uh, I do want to bring some things out of it, so I'll keep you a little longer. We'll read the chapter, it's one of the shortest, so, and I want to take a theme out of the whole of the chapter this morning, so it's a good job it's a short one. I urge then, 1 Timothy 2, I urge then that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed as a herald and as an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was called first and then Eve, and Adam was not the, the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But woman will be saved through childbearing in their continuing faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Lord, we pray that the, the word of the Lord reaches this morning, and the truth of what we hear will be practically worked out in what we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a chapter, that's a bit of a jumble, really, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, you know, when I first read it, I thought, well, I'm going to be in this for about five weeks. Because it just seemed that it, as if Paul was just having had a flea in his brain. And he was thinking about this, the bookman was thinking about that, and then they, they seemed such disconnected thoughts with no bridge between them. If you look back into the chapter and just read it, I think you'll see what I mean on the first reading. You know, why, why should I pray for rulers? Why did Paul go? Why should women look right and act right? Actually, they are very well connected. Each of those themes finds its significance in the central theme that is already coming through the letter. Now, if I can just take you back to a little while since we, we began in Timothy. In the first 11 verses, the, the central theme was the importance of truth, doctrine, not being ashamed or frightened of it, but actually seeing that I need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, in the things of God, and that my conception will forge my behaviour. 
that sometimes one can run ahead of the other, but not for long. The two have got to go together. That the, the New Testament never separates them. And that the Christian who says, oh, I don't like doctrine, is actually going to stunt their growth and development seriously. And then in the second half of the first chapter, it was the truth about me, about my sinfulness, about God's call on my life, about where I'm going and the purpose for which he's brought me into this world in the first place. And the, in almost the two hinge verses at the end of, of the first one, verse 11, where the Apostle talks about behaviour, verse 11, that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And Paul has already referred to himself as an apostle, as a bearer of tidings, a man sent to convey, and then he starts talking about this glorious gospel. We go on into the second half of the first chapter, verse 15, and he enlarges on it. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And the gospel is coming through. Now what do we find in this second chapter? What is the central theme? Well, the importance of these disconnected units of praying for kings and, and not wearing, not braiding your hair and <laughs> being in a... They, 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 are, they find significance. I'll come to that in a minute. They find significance actually in the gospel. You've got to take those kind of passages in the context that they're found in. Now, I'm sure that we have all heard about the importance of praying for kings and rulers. But it's very easy to take that theme right out of the chapter that it's placed in. And I don't believe that Paul did have a flea in his brain when he wrote 1 Timothy 2. That the importance of the themes that we find there, whether it's lifting up holy hands or whether it's a woman's relationship to authority, or, but that they all find their significance and their place here in relation to the Gospel. And uh, it shows how important Paul believed this to be. Timothy was his spiritual son. He was writing to somebody who knew him well. He, he was writing this letter to somebody who had heard this many, many times over already. This wasn't anything new to Timothy. Paul had brought him up. He trained him, he taught him, he schooled him. He'd taken him on his tours with him. There was nothing new at all. And yet it's so important that Paul says it again to Timothy. Fancy that, you know, I write a letter to Ray, and in the middle of it, I define the gospel again. That Jesus came for all men. That he came as a ransom for all. That he came there to bring eternal. I think, well, what's David telling me that for? Anything I'm not know? No, not because I don't think you know it. But in order to underline again the importance of the gospel as the central theme that everything else hangs around. And we won't understand the other things until we see them in relation to the gospel. A gospel, the benefits of which we are universal and yet have to be received, have to be appropriate, have to make them my own. A gospel of one who came as a ransom. They're lovely words, aren't they? Hmm? The, this is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one God 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. The normal word for a ransom in the Greek is the word lutron, and it's somebody who acts on behalf of another. The, the word has an appendix on this usage, and it's strengthened, and it's, it, it's one who stands instead of another. And Paul is writing to Timothy and emphasising that Jesus is the exchange price. He was the price paid in order to work the transaction. That he is the ground of our freedom. That he actually was stood in exchange for me, my ransom. And he's explaining this in, in some detail, really, when you think of who he's writing to. It's not an evangelistic letter he's writing. It's a letter where he's laying again the central importance of the gospel, of that God came for me. That's, that's crucial. That Jesus left heaven, laid him aside, and came to be a ransom for me. Came to pay the price for me. Stood in my stead so that judgment wouldn't be mine. No, we could stay all day, couldn't we, as far as the gospel is concerned. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Paul was a real gospel man. In each half of the letter, again, plumb in the middle, the gospel, the gospel, Jesus came, sin demanded it, wrath would have been ours, judgment, hell, punishment forever and ever would have been our point. But the gospel, the good news, Jesus, my ransom, my ransom, I sometimes feel we don't sing enough about it, that uh, Mark often rather jokingly, when it's my turn to leave, we'll start to talk about the predictable choruses that have blood in them. Most of our choruses don't have enough blood in them. And we may believe in, in, in restoration, but we believe primarily in redemption and atonement. And that the gospel is essentially this. It's God's scheme. It's God's way of doing things. It's so important. Timothy, I've written one chapter here. I've mentioned it twice. I'm writing a second chapter. I'm going to go on about earrings and things, but right in the middle, the gospel. Get it in its context. So that's the, that, that's the thing that all these other things hang around. It's the reason for his apostleship. Chapter 1, verse 1. It's the reason for his service, verse 12. It's the reason for the display that they are to make for the gospel's sake. Verse 16, it's the reason for the good fight. Why do I carry on with the good fight? Because of the gospel. If Jesus hadn't come, it would be worthless. I'd just be kind of doing it out of a sense of duty. But it, it's a good fight because it's got a gospel in it. There's good news in it. God has loved me and he's loved that man out there. It's lovely and lovely that for all men, Jesus has come and paid a ransom price. And that will put a new fervour into, into whatever I do to serve the Lord. Whatever my, whatever my good fight is, if I understand the gospel, I'll understand that the good fight is worth it. 
Praise God. And let's just look at some of the other elements that Paul now hangs around the gospel. The first one is praying for kings. A concern for the world, a prayer life that fires on all four cylinders. Now, why he enumerates four aspects of prayer without actually clarifying what he means by them is not clear. I'm not sure that there are any sharply divine barriers between um, the, the four categories that he mentions, um, requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. I think it's probably true to say, that, or supplication, the first one, that that draws attention to the thing that I need. Prayer and the idea of prayer actually draws attention to the person doing it. And prayer is something that I do. Intercession draws attention to the person that I'm pleading with. Thanksgiving draws attention to my expectation for what God will actually do if I get on with it. And there is a sense in which when I'm praying I need to be conscious of, my, of the great need that I'm going. I'm not just praying because I feel I should. I pray because there's something that I need God to answer. And I'm praying because it's me. I'm, I'm conscious of myself and my role in it. And I'm conscious of God and of his mercy and of his willingness to hear it. Those all need to be praying on all four cylinders. Need a little bit of each of that when we pray. But why? Why pray for kings? Why on earth should I pray for Margaret Thatcher? Not that I think she's a queen or anything. Don't get me wrong. But why should I pray for those that rule over me? Why should I pray for that kind of anyway? I may not have voted for them, so why should I pray for them today? I'm not going to tell you. But why, <laughs> why should I pray for them? It's interesting, isn't it, when you look at it in its context. We pray for kings. We pray for nations. We pray for social issues that a right opening will come from the gospel. That's quite clearly the context. And uh, the word is used there in the second half of verse 6, for this season, the same way that Jesus came in the appointed time, Galatians 4.4. And uh, it's so important that we pray for our nation so that there will be a time of peace. Now, that's not to say that godliness only grows where there's peace and tranquility. But it's absolutely true to say that a country at war with closed frontiers, with a state-controlled media, that a, a, a country that's born up with strife and distraction and great greed and immorality is a country which will not be receptive to the gospel. And the reason for praying for kings and rulers that there might be peace in our land is that there might be an opportunity for the gospel to reach all men. And that's the reason for praying. That prayer, whether it's for political reasons or social reasons or national reasons, it has one end. It's not a Christian world we're praying for, or even a Christian nation. I don't believe this Christian, this nation will ever be a Christian nation. I'm not sure that the, the, the promises and the, the prophecies in the Word of God point that way. That uh, ideas of this faith will be sounded solidly. I'm not sure that we can really expect that or look for it. But certainly we're not, we're not going to see everybody on the planet become a Christian and become godly. The, the book of Revelation would point quite strongly away from that. But what we're praying for is 
Not that political praying or social praying or national praying should be an end in itself, but to give an opportunity for the godly and the truthful, which is what the word there means, to actually reach out into the nation in which we live. Now, take the abortion issue. Let, let me illustrate it. Why is it so important that we pray and write this week? Simply for, yeah, uh, the abortion issue is worthy of its own right. But the abortion issue, we must not forget, has wider implications. That a nation that goes on slaughtering, and a nation that goes on beckoning God for judgment, and a nation that goes on hardening its heart, is not a peaceful nation that's right for the blessing of God. Now, it's right to pray for abortion for the sake of the unborn. Sure it is. But a compassionate non-Christian will do that. But here we're praying for kings not only that there may be justice in the land, but that the very environment of the nation may be one that the gospel will find a ready home in. That's the context of praying for kings. We pray for kings and rulers so that our land might be right for the gospel. Now that will open itself up in many ways. The Lord will have his hand in all kinds of influences and social changes. But that's the reason we pray. It's almost sensing the saving heart of God. It's mission money. And God's heart is for all men. What a thought. What a reason for having compassion and praying for the nation. And uh, not just praying for me and us, for my needs and our needs. Big prayers because of a great big need that we should pray for kings. Pray that the gospel really will begin to touch us and that the whole climate, the, what Keir was referring to, in a land of spiritual darkness, that the air out there will change. That's why we pray for kings. Because as long as the princes of this world have the influence, men will be held captive in darkness. The scripture is quite clear. So we pray for those in authority. We pray for a time of peace. We pray for an opportunity for the gospel really to have free course among us. And I, I think it is, it is true that where that is done, where there is a saving work and the gospel is running, it's not the preacher. I've heard on a number of occasions people say that they've been in places where there's been a converting anointing. And David, you could preach better. Well, of course I could, but no. Nothing happens when I preach. But people, young men can get up and give a faltering word and they run into the front. That's because the air, the way has been cleared. People have prayed for kings and those in authority that there may be time and peace and opportunity. It's because of the gospel. Because there's only one way. And the, you know, there's no ambiguity. Comparative religion is wrong. To assert that Jesus is just one option is a blasphemy against God. God has made it absolutely clear that unless we come by his son, we don't come at all. My works, my religious practices, whether I pray for Buddha, can, to Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, I'll pray for them all at once, but that will not restore me to relationship, covenant relationship with my God. No way. And Paul here makes it absolutely clear. 
There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. He's paid the price. He's the purchase price. Oh, you've been very intolerant, David. All those people, are they all wrong then? Yeah, absolutely. And so am I. And I'm only saved and I only know the grace of God because of God's Son, Jesus, coming in the flesh for me as a ransom. Let's be quite clear. Don't blur the edges on that one, whatever you do. Or else the whole thrust and importance of mission actually goes out the window. That God's universal love and universal mission, that whole churning up within the life of the early church. Is it for Jews only? Or is it for Gentiles also? Romans 3, where Paul 29 and 30 says, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. This gospel for the world, for all men. There have been theological arguments over it. Is it, is it. is it Calvin or is it Arminius? And is, it, is it all men or is it just men from all nations? And I'm not really concerned. What I know is that the love of God is for that man out there. And God's heart is for that man out there. And the people, are, and the thousand that we've talked to, we can look upon crowds so blase, can't we? And the heart of Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he had a heart of mission. You got it? That's why we pray. Because of the gospel. Because Jesus has came and paid the price for the man next door who doesn't know it. But if he doesn't know it, he doesn't realize the significance of it. There's a world out there. But then, to, then after this, Paul goes on to the, this other section. Strange development. Let me just read it again so you can catch the, the, the flow of it or what appears not to be a flow of it. Verse 7. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Boom, full stop. I want everyone, I want men everywhere to uh, lift up holy hands in prayer with their anger. What's that for? What's, what, you know, what's happening, Paul? Have you got the pages mixed up? Perhaps this is a new scroll. Not at all. You see, the gospel can be hindered. And first of all, Paul is saying that the gospel is hindered by Christians that pray with dirty hands. Do not mean by that. Who shall ascend and live the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart and has, to, has not lifted up his heart to what is false. And uh, Larry Lee, his takes on the Lord's Prayer, I do think it's quite an interesting one, and it's actually stuck with me, I find it quite helpful. That you know, when we come together on a Sunday morning and we start to lift up our hands in prayer, I say, now hang on Lord, have I got any anger? No, no anger, got one under, Lord. And he's disputing. Morning Lord. <laughs> Without anger, and without disputing. Because if there is that anger and disputing in my heart, then I'm going to interrupt the purposes of God for me and the wider progress of the gospel. And uh, we need to recognize that as people and as a church. That uh, if there's anger in my heart, I frustrate the purposes of God. Now, there's often anger in my heart, but I need to recognize that and, and, and actually handle it rightly. Handle <laughs> now, I think verse 8 is, is self-explanatory. But verse 9, 
actually grammatically follows straight on. There is no break. And I believe that what we've got here is Paul, the gospel is on his mind. Pray in the right context. Pray for the right atmosphere, the right sphere, the, the right platform for the gospel to prosper on. That Jesus came as a ransom. I'm sorry to be repeating it, but that's how he handles it. And pray with holy hands so that there may not be inconsistency and, and hypocrisy in your life, which makes your praying and, your, and the gospel seem utterly inconsistent. And then he, without anger and without disputing, and then he remembers that he's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, and what's the big point of disputing in Ephesus? Women. Sorry, ladies. What's the thing that the Ephesian church are, are all about? The role of women, the dress of women. And he, he says, without anger and without disputing, and then on the theme of disputing, he goes straight on from that to illustrate these in the context of women's dress and appearance and women's attitude to authority and ministry, that he illustrates the kind of problem that disputing can produce to a church that wants to commend the gospel outside. And that the references here to the role and the, the appearance of women are there as an illustration. Listen, I, but please don't ever let me hear, without, unless you want to kind of see me blow a fuse. Paul is anti-women. Rubbish. There's, there's more in the New Testament of the dignity and liberty of women, and with the Apostle particularly, than in all of the Greek writings that you can read on. I find that so irritating. People say that, I haven't thought. What we've got here is a is Paul addressing what disputing might mean in a church where there's a problem. Ephesus was an incredibly wealthy city. It was Ephesus where what what we really know is Diana of the Ephesians, but that wasn't really the goddess's name. But great wealth. Ephesus, along with Corinth, was the red light city. It was a city of gross immorality and prostitution. That was the context he was writing to. That was the sphere in which he's illustrating this problem of dissension. Now, can I please, would you please note, let's take the women's dress issue first of all. Quote, a woman's dress is the mirror of her mind. I thought that was quite clever. I didn't claim it was my own. But certainly what a woman dresses, how a woman dresses will speak volumes to a man. And it's contextual. A woman in a bathing costume at a, that, that is showing all of her thigh at, um, will not produce any kind of a reaction to a man. The same woman with a micro skirt on will produce a reaction with a man because her dress is saying something. And the Apostle here is talking about the influence, particularly in the context of ostentation and immodesty. Those are the two things that he's bringing out in the Ephesian context. Now, please, don't anybody feel that it's, oh, well, you can't break your hair, just say so in the Bible. That really bothers me, that kind of silly interpretation. Am I, please, please tell me, is the word of God saying here that every time I pray I've got to put my hands in the air? I could make other comments about other verses of scripture as well in the same thing, but I won't. 
But some of us will know what that means. Hmm? Does it mean that every time a man prays, he's got to have his hands in the air? No, it doesn't. It's referring to an underlying principle which is greatly significant. And it's not the, it's not the actual form that the scripture's getting at. It's whether my heart and hands are clean, whether I'm living inconsistently. It's not whether the breaking is out. Gold is gold is not about but you can wear diamonds. Brass is fine. You can kind of kind of hang it around every hair of your head, but take that silver off system, the Bible says. We're completely misunderstanding the whole thrust of the word of God as it is written. And you've got to contextualize things. This was a place where a woman with all of that stuff on was either parading her superiority, and I've seen some women's hats that have done that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not talking about girls' life very much. <laughs> anyway, here we come. I've been to one, I, the, the, there is a, a, a convention held every year in South Wales where the group believe in that women should, well, not hats, it's like Ascot. <laughs> Panagros convention is incredible. And women go there, they're, it's like, you know what it is, it's like Ascot, it's a shoulder. And see my hat. I've completely misunderstood what the scriptures say. It's not whether a man's got his hands in the air that matters, it's whether his hands are clean. It's whether he's living a compromised life that matters. It's not whether the lady has her hair in pigtails or whether she has it braided. It's whether she's just being ostentatious and projecting herself in a way which is immodest. Are you hearing me? Because it's crucial that we take the thing in the spirit that it was meant. And uh, I, the, the church of which I was previously pastor, the women were never allowed to cut their hair. And uh, when one girl did, that, uh, the, the, an elder didn't speak to that girl for months, she was ostracized because she did. Were never ever allowed to wear any color at all. The ladies, on a, sun, on a Monday they were all right, but on a Sunday they went to church in black. And you might say, oh, yeah, well, that was in the last century. No, it wasn't. That was 20 years ago. And there used to be a row of hats at the door for ladies that came in without one. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? I do not lie. And Jewel, the lady who was given a pearl, a droplet pearl, again, the, the daughter of, of one of the church founders, and was given it for sentimental reasons from somebody who was then there and wore it to church gold. <gasps> well, I please understand that is not what the scripture is saying. Is it? That's nonsense. Here, the whole theme is not being, not, not being provocative or ostentatious, and we need to apply the same principles in our own society and dress. That the, well, it doesn't matter a lot of mine what I wear. Who are you kidding? What right as a young lady to dress in such a way that I can't get my eyes off her in a worship time and I can't get my eyes on God? Oh, it doesn't affect you like that, do you? <laughs> Who are you kidding? 
Because that's the world that we live in. And we ought to dress in such a way as to not cause other people to stumble. You don't like your tile, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on, and I, I've spent enough time on this last section already. If you want notes on, on my perspective of the meaning of this, um, we've done it in the house church, and you've probably had it anyway. But the, the, the underlying principle here is the whole question of usurping authority or lording it over in the matter of teaching. To take this completely out of context and say that women are not allowed to open their mouths in, in, in the church misunderstands the situation totally. The church are people, not buildings. Women were allowed to prophesy and were very, very active in the whole thing. So the whole context is one of a woman lording it over a man and, and laying the law down when it comes to teaching truth. That's not a female role. Maybe you don't like that, well I'm awfully sorry, but that's, as I understand it, what the clear presentation of Scripture is. That the role of the teacher and the laying down of the lines of truth to be established within a local congregation is to be the responsibility of a teaching elder, and that teaching elder must be a man. Now, please don't kind of get all knocked over so, you know, is God unto women? No. That's something that men can do well. And there are far, far, far more things that women can do infinitely better than men, such as caring and compassion and encouraging. And one is no more important than the other. But that's where this verse is coming from. And we need to see it in that context. Now, again, where does, the, where does it end? Well, Paul starts to talk about behaviour uh, on the dressing with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Why? Why should a woman adorn herself with good deeds as one who professes to worship God? For the Gospel's sake. Why is it necessary that women should not be chiding and contradicting and seeking to assert their views in the congregation on matters of truth. Why? For the gospel's sake. Because the people will out there in, in Ephesus and in Asia will say it's not right that women should lord it over like that. It contradicts the gospel. It makes a mockery of God's order in the way that he's established things. It's not right. Dead right, it's not right. But we don't do it just so that we could be all nice and tight. We do it for the gospel's sake. We want our lives, we want the beauty of our character. What is it there? That with the good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God, to commend the gospel. That's the whole point of all these areas, whether it's lifting up hands, whether it's wearing, wearing braiding your hair, or if it offends the gospel, don't do it. That's the context. And we must interpret the individual verses in the light of the gospel. It's the gospel that must not suffer. The gospel is important. It was important enough for Jesus to come from heaven to be a ransom, a payment price for my sin. And if it's that important, well then I must not do anything in my dress, in my attitude, or in my inconsistent life which would in any way undermine his credibility. It's so important. And in the life of the church as well. Remember David Watson in his book, I Believe in the Church, said that the biggest hindrance to evangelism, I believe in evangelism, the biggest hindrance to evangelism in the church today is the church. Why does the man out there not believe that we've got it? 
But because of the church, because of the way that people have behaved. They've completely discredited the gospel. So then we even use the horn oh, and all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, Jimmy Swagger. We have behaved in such a way to discredit the very thing that we believe in and we want to commend. And it's so important, Christian, that we live consistently. So Because isn't it true? You're working in the office and you've shared your testimony, you've been a good witness, you've given out tracks, you've everybody invited for Christmas and whatever else it was that you did. And then one thing, New Testament can be written up in a night. And that's dead soon. And the way that we conduct ourselves in guest services and times when there are those among us who have not yet come to a position of conversion and saving faith, it's so important that we conduct ourselves in a consistent fashion. It really is. And that's what Paul is saying to him. The gospel is so important. The stage must be prepared for the progress of God's scheme of things in his way. And the gospel is the key, the magnitude of it, the glory of it, the wonder of it, the consequence of it. We really do need a good dose of wonder when it comes to the gospel. Thank God for baptismal services when we can remember where we came out of to. And we can remind him of the, of the price of redemption, the blood that was shed, that the Holy Lamb of God loved me enough to leave heaven to go for me. That's brilliant. That's the gospel. And nothing must stand in its way. And uh, we also need to be quite sure that we, that, that we are in need of the gospel. Then have you been converted yourself? It's one of the reasons that some of these things don't mean a lot to you. Because the gospel hasn't really met your need yet. You don't know a personal sense of forgiveness. The love of God hasn't warmed your heart yet. You have not got a face-to-face living relationship with a God who loves you and has sent Jesus to bring God and you back together. Now, if I have not got a personal faith and experience of the gospel, that won't have happened yet. And I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying this so it can happen. And that the wonder of the gospel, which has so excited Paul, can be a wonder to you. So it's not just something, oh, well, I go along this way because my dad does, or my mum does. So that for your sake, God reaches my heart and turns my heart around, and I'm, I'm a gospel person. I'm loved, I'm forgiven. The grace of God has reached me. So that it's not just an academic thing, it's something that each of us urgently needs to come to terms with. The gospel, the good news of God. I ask you, Father, that you will help us in the life that we have to live consistently with the gospel. And I ask you, Jesus, that you will help us never to lose the one another, never to become blasphemy, never to become so familiar that the sheer wonder and magnitude of it loses its edge. Make Calvary real to me. Make the empty tomb a wonder to me. Make 
the Son of God, ascended to the throne of heaven, interceding for me now. Life shall In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for us as a fellowship that you'll help us to be very, very careful in our personal lives, in our appearance, in our conduct, to live in such a way as to commend the gospel. The Lord, the gospel that is heard of from you might be heard from life as well as from them, and that the two will have the same message. In the name of Jesus.